I know I've said it before, but I will say it again. I do feel so blessed that I can tap so many men on the shoulder to come up and share with us the reading of God's Word and prayer and to run our offering. And it is not an easy thing to be up in front of a big group of people and read and pray. And I am immensely grateful for your faithful service in, in doing so. So before we get into the bulk of our message this morning, I want to wish all of you a happy Palm Sunday. The tradition of Josh preaching on Palm Sunday continues, and the way things are looking right now, I might have quite a few Palm Sundays ahead of me, Lord willing. But this morning's message is not going to be particularly Palm Sunday-themed. I think I have beaten that horse to death enough over the last number of years that uh, we'll revisit it in a few years' time. But it is, however, still important for us to recognize the, the season that we're in. And this marks one week until we get to come together and celebrate Resurrection Sunday on Easter. And as we'd said, we will also be celebrating Monday Thursday this Thursday. But Palm Sunday is the, the day that we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey being worshipped by the crowds, only to be turned on by those same crowds just a few short days later. It's true that in our Christian lives we should be constantly aware of Christ's sacrifice for us and constantly aware of the significance of the Easter story. But these moments in church life, moments like Christmas, Easter and others, help us to particularly focus on the great events that have given shape to our faith. This Sunday, this Thursday, this coming Sunday, they're, they're just days. They're days where we come together to remember, but it is no extra holy. But I do know that Lord willing, next Sunday I'll probably see a pile of new faces in here. A pile of brothers and sisters that maybe we don't get to see as often. A pile of families visiting and celebrating together the, the Easter holiday. And one of the amazing blessings of these Christian holidays is it gives us opportunities to speak the truth of why we celebrate these holidays. And I encourage you, as you have opportunity, to invite brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, whoever, friends, co-workers, to join with us on Thursday and on this coming Sunday and every Sunday to come and to worship and to know the truth. But on Palm Sunday, we remember the day where the Word made flesh, God the Son, rode into Jerusalem for the last time, riding into the praise of thousands, but all the while knowing that he was riding to his own death at the hands of the very people who should be bowing, bowing before him as their Lord and Savior, and many of whom at that moment were bowing before him. The faith of the crowds was fickle. 
And as we continue, I know that back here it says it's Hebrews 4.4. We haven't rewound the clock quite that far where Hebrews 11.4 today is going to be our passage. We're getting further into that hall of fame of faith that we're talking about and a faith that is enduring and tested, unlike the fickle faith of the crowds that Jesus would have experienced. I had mentioned last week that I'd kind of thought maybe I would get to our, our person last week, but alas, that was not the case, and here we find ourselves this morning. I know before when I've been listening to conversations in the foyer here at church or in Bible studies or wherever I may be, I often hear this phrase, when I die... I want to ask God blank. And some of them are incredibly deep and difficult questions. Why does evil and suffering exist if you are a good God? Some of them are a little bit more technical. What kind of fish was it that swallowed Jonah, and how did he live in there? And some of them are just related to our human condition going, how could the disciples manage to sleep in Gethsemane? They knew what Jesus was going through. How, how was that even possible? But I hear a lot of these questions. When I get to heaven, I want to ask God and fill in your blank there. Well, one I'd sometimes li- like to ask is, why Abel, who is who we're looking at today, he's the second person born post-fall and the first one to be recorded bringing an acceptable offering to God, why does he get so little airtime? You don't see him come up much throughout the rest of Scripture. Today we're going to look at a couple of only a handful of passages that talk about Abel and try to understand how it is that a man that doesn't get a pile of airtime throughout the rest of Scripture, but here in this who's who list of the faith, he finds a place right at the very beginning. But before we dive into Abel and his story, would you join with me in prayer? Our God and our Heavenly Father, you are in the process of teaching us by your word what it means to have faith. Last week, we were able to begin to define it. But as we look at these men and women of the faith, as we proceed through this book, we ask that you would help us to see it in the amazing, multifaceted, fully-orbed way that you present it in your Word. Our faith in you is not one-dimensional, Lord. At least it shouldn't be. And Lord, we pray that you would use this to grind out and polish our faith in such a way that our faith would begin to shine as a diamond with many, many facets and many, many reasons and good proofs and a deep knowledge of you. 
Lord, I thank you for each one of my brothers and sisters who are able to gather with me as we go on this journey through your word. And that that would be our focus, that we will be focused on your word and what it has to say to us. And that as we hear your word, that we would recognize that this is you speaking to your people. By your word, we can know what you have to say. God, quiet our hearts and our minds. Focus our thoughts and our affections upon you. And speak to us by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So perhaps Abel doesn't get as much airtime as I'd have guessed as the second-born human in creation. But if we rightly understand the story of Abel, we can be greatly encouraged as we try to understand the nature of faith. As we pursue that understanding of faith through the list in chapter 11, we're going to keep coming back to verses 1 to 3. Because verses 1 to 3 give us our definition, and each one of the men and women listed in this is assuming that, okay, I've justified it, now here is an example. So for our passage this morning, which is primarily verse 4, let's read verses 1 to 4. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So the first three people that we have listed in the Bible are typically used as negative examples. Adam and Eve were obviously not great examples as far as faithfulness to God. The next one up, Cain, uh, figures heavily into the backstory this morning, but spoiler alert for anyone not aware, he's not a good example of faith either. Indeed, Abel, in his few verses at the beginning of Genesis 4, becomes the first real example of true faith in human history. Remember that the fall has occurred. Adam and Eve have been expelled from the garden. And the human relationship with God has been forever changed. But Adam did not need to have the same kind of faith in God that everyone since has. Adam had seen and walked with God in the garden. I had mentioned last week that once Christ returns and our faith then becomes sight, at that point it's too late for anyone to believe in faith because at that point the proof is in front of them. 
I don't need to have proof that there are people in Elk Point Baptist Church this morning because I can look around and see that there's people sitting here. Adam had seen God face to face, so face to face, so his faith was different because he'd seen it. But reading our verse this morning, we hear this tidbit of the first ever account of true faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteousness, as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So obviously, we're going to need the backstory. And for our backstory, we're going to be flipping back to Genesis chapter 4. Near to the very beginning, Adam and Eve have been expelled, and we're going to look at verses 1 and following. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. But the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. We will pause there because this is not Cain's story. Another of those nagging questions that we would love to ask God one day, and one that I've heard regularly is, reading this passage, why the regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's? For some, the answer seems to be, well, the offering that Cain brought was of the fruit of the ground and Abel brought a lamb. But Throughout Scripture, we have many examples of acceptable offerings that come from the fruit of the ground. Grain offerings and offerings of oil and natural incenses are found to be acceptable to God in a variety of instances throughout the Old Testament. And I mean, there is grounds to say that the offering of blood is primary throughout the Old Testament. And... Honestly, that makes it very tempting for me to go 
a different direction and just directly equate the shedding of blood of this sacrificed lamb with the blood of the lamb at Calvary. A entirely valid theme throughout Scripture. But I don't think that was the primary reason for God's rejection of Cain's offering. There are a pile of passages throughout Scripture that point to the importance of blood in the forgiveness of sins. But I don't think that's the main thrust of today's passage, so we keep digging a little deeper. The second thought for the reason here is that it has to do with the type of offerings that the brothers brought. Not the lamb versus the fruit of the ground, but as it's recorded, Cain simply brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, where by contrast, Abel brought of the firstborn of the flock and their fat portions. Perhaps Cain just brought the leftovers and Abel brought the best. Perhaps we're getting closer to the crux of the matter. One just brought an offering and the other brought the best, but our passage tells us that it was by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. I don't think Abel's offering was accepted by God solely because of what it was. At this point in redemptive history, we don't have recorded for us anyway any specific of the what, when, where type instructions that we will receive later in the law in the Old Testament. And that's the framework our mind immediately jumps to. Okay, well, according to the law, you bring a for a sin offering, which this isn't identified specifically as a sin offering either, but for a sin offering, you bring the, these animals and so, and so on and so forth, but here in the Old Testament, we are pre all of these things. Abel's sacrifice primarily was accepted because of his faith. This is further confirmed if we look at Romans 3, which we talked a little bit about last week, the talk, Paul is talking about the faith of the patriarchs and those that God has accepted from the old covenant. And when Paul talks about faith in the patriarchs, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then he goes on to say, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Passed over the sins of those under the old covenant. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is again tying back to all we've talked about from chapter 10 in the Old Covenant. But we know that primarily the Old Covenant sacrifices and even pre Old Covenant, Old Testament law sacrifices in and of themselves had no real redeeming value. Those sheep and goats that were sacrificed, the bulls, the grain offerings, all of those things. Indeed, all of the law served to remind us of the fact that we cannot keep God's law and that blood will be required but the blood of these lambs and these bulls is not the blood that would be required. It would be the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is not enough for us to simply know that Abel had faith. We knew that by the list that he's a part of here in Hebrews 4. But what is it about Abel's faith? It's going to go through and list a pile of different people from all across Israel's history. What is it about Abel's faith that we are supposed to watch for? When the audience of this letter received it, what would they have kind of tweaked on of like, oh, yeah, Abel's a great example of this. The two main points that our author gives us is that through his faith, Abel was commended as righteous. And that through his faith, though he has died, he still speaks. I do believe that when Cain brought his offering before the Lord and Abel then brought his, that the quality of the offering, if the syntax here is indicative of Cain's wasn't quite as thought out and the best of the best, but I do believe that that would have been indicative of the type of man bringing it and the quality of his faith. But God commends Abel by his gifts. When Abel brings his absolute best to the Lord, he demonstrates his faith in the Lord. He demonstrates why throughout the few other references we have in our scriptures to him, he receives a specific title. Jesus says in Matthew 23, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel. That's the attachment that Abel receives throughout Scripture. Another one, 1 John 3. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Abel brings his offering and he does so in faith. And he is commended as righteous. And this commendation comes in the acceptance of his offering. You and I, we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. We are told that even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, a polluted garment. And if today we were to swing by one of our local cattle owners or sheep farmers and pick up a sheep or a cow, that the blood of that animal would do nothing to give us any kind of righteousness. But with the addition of faith, Abel is counted as righteous because of his faith. That addition of faith changes the equation where including it, he becomes Righteousness. He's commended as righteous. When 
most of us come to church, we don't often bring a pair of doves or cattle or sheep or any of those kind of things, but we do often bring tithes and offerings and we drop it in the plate or some will send it via e-transfer or a check or whatever it might be. And I do hope that when you do so that you, you bring of your best, that you faithfully and cheerfully give to God, not based on a number in your head or a percentage that you feel like you have to do, but that you are giving out of the joy of your hearts for the support of the work that God has done. And I hope that you do so because there is no benefit to you giving to any church, any charity, or any of these things apart from faith. Don't get me wrong, God is capable of using the funds of both the righteous and the wicked. And it would be easy for me to stand up here and want to just pad the pockets of the church and say, doesn't matter who you are, whether you have faith in God or not, come give your offering and we'll find a good use for it. And God will find a good use for the offerings that come in, even the ones that come in from one who doesn't have any faith in God. But you cannot buy righteousness, no matter what anyone tells you. And Abel did not buy righteousness by the offering that he brought to God. With the mind of Cain and Abel's sacrifice, hear Proverbs 15.8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Each one of us here today are wicked sinners without God. We are desperately in need of His grace and the righteousness that He provides. Our only righteousness comes from Him, and the same can be applied to Abel. doesn't matter where you're from in redemptive history, pre-Old Covenant, Old Covenant, New Covenant, today, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. When we bring our offerings to God on Sunday mornings, we're doing so because we have faith in God. We are returning to Him that which He has given us. We are asking that He would use these gifts for His glory. And the Bible is clear. Our God owns all of everything and everyone. He does not need your money. He owns all of creation, so he has no shortage of earthly means. But it is an opportunity for us to prove that our faith is true. I've heard it often said that if you wonder what a man cares about, you will look at how he spends his money and how he spends his time. And... When we come here on Sunday mornings, we are spending our time here. And when we give our tithes and our offerings, we are spending our money. But we are not buying anything with that time or money. Your butt in the pew, your money in the plate, no matter the size of the donation, cannot buy you any kind of righteousness with God. 
but it is an opportunity that God gives us to participate in the work that he is doing, and it is an opportunity for us to show the truth of our faith. We are told that faith without works is dead. So that's what I see when I look at Cain bringing an offering and Abel bringing these fat portions, the best of the best. And the second major application that our author gives us is that Abel, through his faith, though he died, still speaks. So what is it that Abel speaks? Is it just that we should have faith? Abel is commended as righteous because of his faith. And by extension, you and I have a manner of the same option. And remember here, Abel is being extended as an example to these New Testament Hebrew Christians. By the example of faith, and by the righteousness that comes through faithful service to God, in God, Abel still speaks now even millennia later. I was thinking of memorable and notable people in human history that everyone would know. That number is getting slimmer as generations move on, but I think all of us, if I say the name Ben Franklin, will know, okay, I have at least an idea of who he is. Initially, we'll probably get the image of an American bill or perhaps a guy flying a kite in a lightning storm. He created the lightning rod. He created bifocal glasses. He was the first U.S. Postmaster General. He contributed to the authoring of the American Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. He was incredibly well-known, and he still is by almost everyone today. In the Poor Richard's Almanac, a publication that Franklin also created, he once said this, and it's kind of a cobbling together of multiple quotes, so he might not be the original one, but the way he cobbled it together, it goes, If you would not be forgotten as soon as you are dead and rotten, either write things worth reading or do things worth writing. I love that saying. It captures this pervasive human need to leave an enduring legacy. Somehow or another, to leave this lasting impact on the world before you leave it. And this is so incredibly pronounced in the world of the pagan world. If you do not believe that there is anything that comes after this, if you believe that you're going to die and then you're going to rot in the ground, then your only option for enduring beyond this life is to leave a legacy. Your only option for carrying on is maybe to carry on in your family name, to do something worth writing about or write something worth reading. 
I don't anticipate that many of us, when we die, other than in our family names, will carry on for centuries in our history. Not many of our names are going to pop up in history books. But think of this. Abel, the second person ever to be born on this earth by natural human means, from then, at the very, very beginning of things, now millennia later, he still speaks. And this idea of leaving a legacy, even as I was talking about it, you could probably sense that there's this tension of, well, is it a good thing to want to leave a legacy? Because it kind of seems self-serving. It might seem at odds with Matthew 6, where Jesus is teaching the people, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Isn't it hubris? Isn't it pride to want to just leave your mark on history so that future generations will remember you? But then there's this sliver in Hebrews 11.4, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. There's something to be said here for leaving a legacy that will last throughout the ages. And you will know as we have been looking in Hebrews 11, we are the benefactors of an incredible number of Christian legacies. Whether it's the, if we are so blessed, maybe some of us have the legacy of good Christian parents. Do not underestimate that legacy of leaving for your family a legacy of faith. We have the legacy of the church fathers who came before us. Without such, we wouldn't be able to carry around a copy of the scriptures that we can read and understand. Without the legacy of the reformers, we would, you would be sitting there and hearing me read in Latin and not understanding a single thing that was said, and then I would tell you what it means. And it's your job to trust that I know what I'm talking about. And by his faith, Abel's legacy lives on. Though he died, he still speaks. Just as these men and women of the faith in Hebrews 11 and throughout Christian history have left legacies of faith for us to follow, we should be doing the same. We should be pursuing that. But the important difference here is I'm not seeking to leave a legacy of faith for my children so that my name lives on. I don't have three kids sitting back there because I just hope my family name continues. Do I hope that it continues? Absolutely. I would love to see the Bateman clan grow and become one of those names that everyone knows in Elk Point because there's a thousand of us. But that's not the reason I leave a legacy. 
I don't leave a legacy because I want someone to remember me when I'm gone. Because where I go, I could care less about whether or not people know my name and whether I have a Wikipedia page dedicated in my honor that lists the things that I did. When I'm dead and gone, I go to my Savior to worship Him forever. But I do hope that when I'm dead and gone, the legacy of faith that I leave would bring glory to Him. That is where we have this tension. We're not storing up for ourselves treasures on earth when we leave a legacy. And if we're doing so, we're doing it wrong. If you're dead and gone and rotten in the ground and that's the end of all things, then it doesn't matter whether you leave a legacy because you won't be around to know it's there anyways. There is no enduring. There's just an illusion. But if you're dead and gone and your body is rotting in the ground but your soul is with the Lord, then your legacy can live on and continue bringing glory to God for generations. And there we are actively laying up for ourselves treasure in heaven with the legacy that we leave. Remember from last week's passage, we are told it is by faith the people of old received their commendation. And in today's passage, by faith, Abel was commended as righteous. If any of us want to leave a lasting godly legacy, if we want to find ourselves being commended as righteous, even as the faithful servants from Jesus' parable of the talents heard, if we want to hear that well done, good and faithful servant, then the only way to do so is by faith. To be assured and convicted in our Savior. It does not matter the sacrifice you make on this earth if it is made for your own gain. But the sacrifices we make in this life are of incredible value if it is done in faith. Because there it is paired with the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate this week and the week upcoming and every day. Our Savior made the only truly acceptable sacrifice in history, ending this line of sacrifices that go right back to the very first men and women in history, all the way back to Abel. God accepted Abel's sacrifice based on Abel's faith, not because his sacrifice had any actual eternal value. But Christ's sacrifice was different. Christ's sacrifice was the first and only sacrifice of infinite value. Our Savior suffered God's infinite wrath. He satisfied our God's infinite justice. His was the most acceptable of sacrifices. And because of His sacrifice, we no longer rely on the blood of lambs and goats, because those sacrifices are, are done with. The blood that was symbolized in those sacrifices was Christ's blood. And that's why everything in history is either looking forward to or back at the cross. 
We don't rely on the blood of lambs and goats. We rely on the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So respond to that in true faith. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. To live for him in faith, to live to his glory in faith. And in doing so, you will be commended as righteous. You will hear the well done, good and faithful servant. If you persevere unto the end in faith, you will be commended as righteous. And if you persevere unto the end in faith and you leave that lasting godly, godly legacy, though you die one day, you will continue to speak and bring glory to God. Your legacy will join with the millions and millions of others throughout history. Your legacy will join with Abel's, with Enoch's, with Noah's. Your legacy will join with Calvin's and Luther's and Spurgeon's. Your legacy will join with your godly parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts. And all of you together will shout, shout down the halls of history the truth of God's gospel. When you are looking to leave a legacy, you aren't looking to leave something that people will know your name. You're looking to leave a legacy that your name points to the name that is above all names. This time I'd ask that the worship team would start coming up to bring a closing song. I would like to remind and invite each one of you to come to our Monday, Thursday service, 7 p.m. this Thursday. And we will come and engage in a service to talk about what does it look like that our Savior endured the infinite wrath of God, satisfying His infinite justice. And as we come and we worship and we bring our friends and our family and we come and we worship, we do so because our God is our only source of righteousness. Our God is our only source of hope and salvation. And the best thing that any one of us could do is to leave this earth knowing that we have proclaimed that righteousness to everyone who would listen and that no one had an excuse to say that we interacted with to say that they didn't know. And then on Sunday, we will come together again to celebrate the good news that we do not worship yet another dead religious man, but we worship a risen Savior.
Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, you have shown us such incredible love and mercy. You have laid out for us these godly legacies of Abel and Enoch and Noah, and you have spoken of them in your word. May their faith embolden our faith. And may it be said of us that our faith has emboldened the faith of those around us. Lord, we thank you for the church. We thank you that we can come together and embolden each other's faith, gathering and seeing our brothers and sisters together worshiping God. But as we leave from this place and we are no longer shoulder to shoulder with people that we know who are believers, we ask that you would give us the courage to speak the words of life. That we would not just try to be good people, but that we would speak of why we live the way that we live. That we would call people to come and see what it means to be a part of a family that worships you. And that we might live lives here, even within the church, that we are a family who encourages one another, builds one another up in the faith, and who worship you in everything that we do. Lord, we thank you for your word and for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name.